Hey guys, Christian here. Very quick production note before we get started. This week we talked to Bradley Tusk, who is pound for pound probably one of the most successful regulatory consultants in the United States. As we often do on Regulated, we recorded this interview remotely, and at about the 50-minute mark, something came up in the Tusk household, and so we needed to switch over to a phone recording. So you'll notice a change in the way the podcast sounds during like the last six, seven minutes of the show. Otherwise, we're very excited to share this interview this week. This was an absolute blast. Bradley was awesome, and can't wait for you to hear it. Okay, let's get started. This podcast focuses on regulatory and corporate developments in highly regulated spaces. I'm Christian Bax, and I used to regulate medical marijuana. I'm Tony Glover, and I used to regulate alcoholic beverages, casino gaming, and tobacco. Now together, we're regulated. Welcome back to Regulated. We are excited to be joined by Bradley Tusk, who is a venture capitalist, a political strategist, and a writer. He is the founder and CEO of Tusk Holdings, which includes Tusk Ventures, Tusk Strategies, and Tusk Philanthropies. Now, I, I don't normally do this, but I have I have really struggled to write a brief, succinct summary of all of your all of your accomplishments. Bradley. I have a very short attention span. Yeah, <laughs> walk the listeners into yeah, kind of sure. who you are in the last twenty years of your life. Sure. So started in government and politics directly. Hence my appearance on this podcast. Was Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager when he ran for mayor. Worked for him at city hall. Spent four years as the deputy governor of Illinois, oversaw the state's budget operations, legislation, policy, and communications. Spent a couple of years on Capitol Hill as Chuck Schumer's communications director, which is widely known as the worst job uh, in all of Washington. Actually, now I guess being Trump's <laughs> press secretary is the second worst job. Um, started my first company a decade ago, consulting firm that runs big campaigns and that are really hard around the country. So you're Walmart, and you're trying to build stores in five major urban downtowns, and you've got union opposition and zoning issues and community issues. We figured that all out. Pivoted into tech in early 2011. A buddy of mine called and said, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? And I became Uber's first political advisor that day. And then I got really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, listen, I can't afford your fee. Would you take equity? And I didn't know what equity meant, but for some reason I said yes. And then spent the next few years just kicking the shit out of the taxi industry all over the U.S. to legalize ride sharing. And then from there, created a venture capital fund where we invest in startups in regulated industries, uh, seed and series A. So pretty early stage, we are investing out of our second fund and just started raising our third fund right now. And thanks to Uber, I now have my own family foundation. So I am running a couple of different efforts around the country. One is to create mobile voting so that people can vote in elections on their phones. And we have now funded 12 different elections around the country on that, also fund campaigns to create universal school breakfast in states. And we've passed bills in 11 states, around 2 million kids now have access to school breakfast. I host a podcast myself called Firewall. It's about tech and politics. You can find it on any major podcast provider. I wrote a column for Fast Company about tech and politics. wrote a book last year called The Fixer. I've been going back and forth about making a TV show, which would be fun, but has been an incredibly slow and frustrating process so far. Yeah, live in New York two kids and spend the rest of my time worrying about the Mets. I'll start with, I think, the funniest comment from that introduction, which was how you how you phrased the comms director for Senator Schumer as the, as the worst job in Washington. Describe that dynamic, because the way you describe it in your book is he is a, a man who loves the spotlight a great deal. And you were in charge of directing that spotlight there. You know, there's this joke in Washington that the most dangerous place to be in D.C. is between Chuck Schumer and a TV camera. and And that's very much the case. 
Chuck, in many ways, is like your quintessential politician, that his good qualities are really good and his bad qualities are really bad, and they're kind of both on steroids all the time. So on the good side, he is unbelievably smart. Just ask him and he'll, he'll tell you so. He's honest. I don't think he's ever really been involved in any sort of corruption issue in his 40-ish years of politics. And, and, and he's not inherently a bad person by any means. He also desperately, desperately gets all of his self-worth and self-validation from holding office and that from that really from getting media attention. And he wakes up in the morning and if his name is in the paper a lot, he's happy. And if it's not, he's unhappy. And how he feels about his entire life is basically dictated by how much press he gets. So if you are his comms director, you are not just responsible for his reputation or his image or for providing information to reporters. You're responsible for his happiness. And uh, so on one hand, it's, you know, I remember I, I worked for him for, couple of months in, I kind of figured that out, and it was kind of a light bulb went off. And on one hand, it's horrible, right? Because you are working literally 24-7 because he's calling you starting at 5 a.m. and all through the night and everything else because you were basically representing the one thing he cares about. And then on the flip side, it's kind of great because you're the most powerful person in the office by far because whatever nonsense you come up with, they have to go try to do it. So like Chuck would have – he's famous for the Sunday press conference where every yeah. Sunday – because the competition is is minimal, he has a press conference announcing something. But the problem is, senators don't really do anything, right? Like once in a while, they're really important, and then ninety nine point nine percent of the time, they're useless. But he needed that attention all the time, so I would just have to make up ridiculous shit, like you know, investigating the high price of breakfast cereal or windshield wiper fluid or whatever it was. But then you know, you would say you couldn't just say, "Oh, I don't like this." You have to say, "We're calling on the AG for an investigation, or we're introducing legislation, some sort of governmental action to make it relevant." And it was so besides the point that I, I literally had a post-it note on my computer screen that said, "Remember to send the letter," because we would constantly send letters to companies complaining about things, and the press conference would come or go, and then the letters, the company's response in the article the next day is. We never got the letter, and I realized they weren't lying. It was so besides the point that once the press conference was over, it didn't even occur to me to actually send it to them. And so it was a crazy job. I did it for two years. A year into it, 9-11 happened. So at least for uh, about a six-month period, it, it did feel very meaningful. And I thought Chuck performed really well during 9-11. And then after two years, this kind of a make-or-break point with Chuck, which either you're going to spend the rest of your career with him, which some people do, or you're going to escape with your sanity, which I sort of did. Right. You were his comms director doing two very monumental moments for Senator Schumer. One was obviously 9-11, then the, the senatorial ascendancy of Hillary Clinton at the same yeah. time, which is a I'm junior fun. senator who outshines the senior senator, right? Which is right. never easy. One of the other things that you have are very deep campaign experiences, specifically running Mike Bloomberg's mayoral campaign. Yeah. And, and a couple of the really interesting things that came out of that, you know, obviously early on, you nuked Anthony Weiner, right? <laughs> which was, which I, is well, very I, interesting. Anthony's a Chuck guy. So I, I knew exactly what we were getting into here. <laughs> and so the stuff that you did, basic premise was like this guy, if he makes it in, is potentially dangerous because he's going to start with 45% of the boat and he's Correct. just so audacious and, and and also frankly very interesting and engaging yeah and hardworking and aggressive and talent i mean he, he has clear mental sanity save stability issues but yeah he's a talented politician right and i mean and at the time though right you're sending you're sending door knockers out really early but not necessarily across canvassing the whole you know all of manhattan you're canvassing like his neighborhood and his mom's neighborhood yeah i mean basically <laughs> that that campaign for mike in 2009 was really 
two campaigns in one. So the, the three, the first was we had to change the law to allow Mike to run for a third term in the first place. And so when I finished up in Illinois, I guess I left that out of my bio because it was so not that interesting, but I had this idea about privatizing state lotteries and spent about two years on Wall Street trying to build a business around it. In fact, given that you're sitting in Tallahassee, spent a lot of time in Tallahassee working on the, on the floor of the lottery, among others. Lehman Brothers was the place in my infinite wisdom where I chosen to work. And people might have recall they filed for bankruptcy and took down the global economy with them. And I get a call later that day from Mike saying, what are you doing? And I said, I think, you know, he's like, yeah, I got an idea. And the next thing I know, we're, I'm running a campaign to change the law so we can run for a third term. That succeeds. Now we're looking at the race. But you got to understand, if you're not the Democrat in New York City, winning is like a fluke, right? So Mike won in 01 because 9-11 happened. The Democratic challengers imploded in ways that were just spectacular. And because Mike seemed really competent, it was just enough for the voters to say, yeah, let's give this guy a chance. And then he got reelected, you know, in part based on being competent. When Giuliani won in 93, only because crime was at a record high. It, it, these days, we get maybe 400 murders a year in New York. That period, we're getting 2,500 murders, right? So people were terrified. So normally, if you're not the Democratic candidate, you can't win. For example, we have a mayor's race here next year. And the only thing anyone's talking about in regards to it is the primary because the general is considered a, a non-issue. So Mike was at best eligible for, say, 55% of the total vote because 45% is going to go to the Democratic nominee. If it were you or me, we would walk in with 45%. So that means you have to get 50.1 out of the remaining 55. So it's like 90% of that, that vote. So your opponent really mattered a lot because if someone really talented ran against you, picked up another 5%, they're in. And it was a tough moment. Changing term limits was unpopular. And so we lost a lot of support for that. Mike was a billionaire during the financial crisis. And on one hand, people felt that was helpful because he knew what to do. But on the other hand, it was just resentment of billionaires. Obama had just won. So there was all this energy around Democrats. And so we knew that the race was going to be really, really close. And the kind of the best thing we could do to win was to pick our opponent. And the guy that scared me the most, as you said, was, was Anthony Weiner. This is obviously before all the Twitter scandals and everything else. He's just this incredibly aggressive, hardworking, creative congressman from Queens and Brooklyn, a lot of energy. And my fear was basically that African-American Latino voters, whether our opponent was black, white, or Latino, would still by and large pick the Democratic nominee, whoever it was. But I felt Anthony would be much more competitive with us for white ethnic voters, so Jews, Italians, Irish in, in New York. Again, if he just got a little bit of it, it probably would have been enough to win the election. And so the first kind of campaign there was to knock him out of the race. And we just fuck with him relentlessly. So I'm supposed to put in a plug for my book, I assume. So I wrote a book called The Fixer, where there's a chapter on this. It's pretty entertaining, I think. We Long before our real canvas started, we canvassed two neighborhoods in New York, his neighborhood and his parents' neighborhood. And we would just so everyone that they knew constantly said, wow, Bloomberg's already knocking on my door. <laughs> You know, we did so much oppo on this guy, and he would play hockey every Tuesday night at a place called Chelsea Piers in Manhattan. And, you know, a lot of us in the Bloomberg campaign had worked in, in, in Congress at one point or another, so we kind of understood that House votes are very unpredictable. And if you're always in New York on a Tuesday night, invariably, you're going to miss some vote at some point. It might be the most minor procedural thing ever, but, you know, you're not doing your job. And so every Tuesday night, we hit a photographer in the stands at Chelsea Piers. And then one night, a vote came up. He wasn't there. 
we got a great photo of and he actually had Wiener on the back of his jersey, so he was the goalie. So we had a big photo of Wiener, gave us the near post, and the front page the next day was puck off, you know, Wiener skips votes to play hockey. I drove him nuts. And we just kept doing things like that until he eventually realized that if he ran, we were going to so brutalize him that, you know, he might have won, but if he lost, his career was going to be over. Turned out he blew up his own career anyway. He didn't need right. our help in doing that. But yeah, it was very fun. And then we ended up with a opponent who was a really nice man named Bill Thompson, who just wasn't that aggressive. And the race went the way exactly we thought it was. And Thompson got the 45% you would have expected. I loved the the piece in the book about the geotagging. Back when geotagging was still kind of this novel concept. It's basically, yeah. you made it so that every time he accessed the internet, you would have ads basically scrolling across the top of your screen. And it was every time he turned on the internet, basically, he saw his, his opponent staring there, at him. Yeah, face. we bought every every ad we could, certain zip codes. I mean, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated now, right. obviously, but this was... But yeah, so wherever he was going online, there we were. And, and that was the point, was just to be omnipresent all the time, everywhere, and scare him out of the race. Do you ever feel bad? Like, just, just completely no, he's an bombing asshole. this guy? <laughs> he's an asshole. In fact, look at it this way. So being a congressman, 99 times out of 100 is like a meaningless job, right? You know, nothing ever passes. They're voting on nonsense. They have no administrative responsibilities that are meaningful. Right. If he, if we didn't do that to him, the whole scandal would have happened at Gracie Mansion as mayor. Being mayor of New York City is a really important job, right? You're running the most important city, I would argue, in the world. And it would have been a, a calamity for the city to have their mayor involved in this crazy sex scandal. And instead of it mattering, you know, part of the reason the whole thing was sort of fun, I think, was because, oh, he's in this job where it doesn't really matter anyway. He's kind of famous without being important. So I think we saved New York City from that. Speaking of controversial people in politics, the last thing I wanted to touch on was your policy experience, which was in Illinois working for the ill-fated governor, Rob Blagojevich. Yep. Four long years. Yeah. Educate the listener as to, as to what your job was, because it's actually more meaningful than I think than the title would suggest. You know, Rod, in some ways, had this both totally crazy and yet, if you think about it, totally rational view, which is that the job of running for office and the job of holding office are two totally different jobs. And he is an amazing politician, best retail political skills I've ever seen. He can go to black church, sing gospel, bring the place down. He can go to parade and literally crowd surf. But he really saw his job as limited to winning the election. And he would he would actually say, I did my job. I'll see you guys again in four years. And he had no plan of doing any work in the interim, one of the laziest people you've ever, ever met. And so he just wouldn't come to work. I mean, he would go three months at a clip without even showing up at the office. In, in some places, there's you know multiple deputy governors, deputy mayors, whatever it is. It was just me. So yeah, you're 30 when this is happening. Yeah, right? yeah. So I'm working at City Hall for Mike. Phone rings, and a guy that I'd worked in the Schumer's office, who had been Blagojevich's AA, which is the chief of staff in the House, said, "Hey, do you want to be the deputy governor of Illinois?" And I said, "Like, what's a deputy governor, and why are you calling right. me?" And ultimately, they hired me because the people around Rod understood that he was so crazy that if you didn't get someone who was young enough that it was a career-making job for them, they'd never put up with it. There was a guy in that job when I got there for the first month, and he quit because no rational person would, would handle that. But when you're 29, you're told you're now in charge of a $70 billion budget, you know, 80,000 state employees, every operation, every policy, every everything. You say, you know, only because you're so young, you don't realize you, you should know better. You're like, all right, cool. And so 
you know, I, I get there and I'm working and he's getting more and more disengaged as, as time goes on. And, you know, every year, as, as you know, sitting in Tallahassee, the legislature passes a whole bunch of bills and most of them are nonsense. Like the official amphibian of Illinois is the frock or whatever. Right. But there's a process. There's bill review. So there's policy review, legal review, budget review. And we go through all of this. And it was like five or 600 bills. So it was a lot of work. And I called him and said, hey, man, you know, I need you to decide if you want to sign or veto these things. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm busy. Doing what? He's like, you know, literally reading biographies of Napoleon and watching Sports Center. And he kept putting me off. And finally, like, well, do you know what you want to do? I'm like, well, I have my view. He's like, just do that. I'm like, don't you want to know the bill is about? He's like, nope, I don't care. Just do it. And that was it. For the next four years, it was just my job to run the government. So, you know, for example, for the state budget, we'd figure out what we wanted to be. I'd write the speech, I'd hand it to him the night before and say, you're going to read this off the teleprompter tomorrow to the legislature. And he would do it wonderfully, by the way, really talented. And then never come back again to actually negotiate the budget. Didn't know what bills we were signing, vetoing. The only thing that made me nervous was granting pardons. So I, I denied pardons just to kind of keep the backlog low. And if people were cleared by DNA evidence, then I granted them. But if it was just kind of a judgment call, I felt like that was no one voted for me. And I was a little beyond, beyond right. my responsibility. But it was a crazy four years because one, I got to run this state, which I had no business doing. And two, even though he wasn't governing, he still was all over you all the time because he was obsessed with politics and was constantly convinced that everyone's out to get him. He was incredibly paranoid. So he would call all day with these conspiracy theories. The problem is, this was Chicago politics. They were out to get him. Now, they weren't out to get him on the crazy things he thought they were out to get him, Yeah, but they were out to get him. And so you're spending half your day placating and dealing with this nut and then half the day trying to run the state. And it was incredibly interesting. I, I think in some ways I was lucky I was so young because I don't think I'd have the energy or patience for it now. But it was a really interesting, weird four years. It's interesting when you talk to you know young people who get these positions of power kind of before they really know that the full scope of what they're jumping into. It's almost like when you're a baby or you're a, you're, you're a toddler, you can sustain injuries. You can, your body can bend and be more flexible right. than you can as an adult, right? So you can almost survive that that cataclysmic crash sometimes that you go through that if you're a 50 year old with all of this life experience and context that it can it can be very damaging for you you know emotionally but when you don't know what you don't know and you jump into it you have a little bit more resiliency what what is that like when you're you know 29 30 what is, what is that pressure like when you realize that you're basically thrown into the deep end and you, you have to do this guy's job. Of I, yeah. I mean, it was a crazy realization and it, you know, it kind of came to me in, in pieces. And at first I felt like, Hey, this isn't what I signed up for. I shouldn't be doing this. And then at the same time, one, one upside of being so young is you kind of don't know better. It's like, well, someone's got to do it. It might as well be me. And you just do it and you make decisions. And even though I was so much younger, I remember the first I got to Illinois and actually worked on the budget from City Hall in New York before I even started. And then we were presenting our plans. I think it was like a $6 billion deficit to eliminate the budget. And I was going to brief the cabinet. And I'd never met these people before. And they were all assembled waiting for me in this big conference room in Springfield, Illinois. And I was about to walk in and I kind of duck my head in. And I'm like, holy shit, all these grownups are in here. Right? I'm 20 <laughs> like, okay, just go in there. Tell them how it's going to be. And they were great because you know what? They needed to they wanted someone to give them direction. Someone they didn't want to deal with Blagojevich. They were happy that I had to do that. They wanted someone to answer their calls and answer their questions, and I did. And actually, ended up being a great working relationship with the legislature, with our cabinet, and 
everyone else. And one upside to being so young in a way is you don't realize what you're not supposed to be able to achieve. So we took on some fights that I think normally you'd say, oh, here are the hundred reasons politically why this makes no sense. We were the first state to import prescription drugs from Europe and Canada. We were the first state to do universal health care for kids. We were the first state to tear down every toll booth on the tollway and put up open road toll, you know, all these different things. And one of the reasons we did it was it didn't really occur to me that you couldn't do it because I was so young that I didn't know better. I hadn't kind of been beat down enough by politics to be fearful. And look, we failed at lots of things too, but we probably accomplished more than we should have in part because the, the hubris of youth was helpful that way. When you're in that position and you're you're dealing with these existential issues, what do you do or what did you do to keep a steady keel and stay sane? Because there's there's a lot of political pressure and then later on there's a lot of you know very real legal and ethical yeah. issues. But yeah, sure. so what 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 is your what, what is mean, your strategy was, for getting through that? It was hard, right? Because in, in some ways I was young and didn't really have the perspective of things like, you know, exercise or meditation or th- things that an adult would know to do mm-hmm. uh, or therapy or whatever else. But, you know, my wife and I were, you know, just would kind of enjoy Chicago and do stuff there. We didn't have our daughter till the, the very end of that term. But it was frustrating. And I was working way too much, pretty much seven days a week, all day, every day and into the night. And I don't think I balanced it well at all. I just kind of accumulated a tremendous amount of of stress. Where I get lucky, as you were referring, obviously, to Rod's Rod's legal problems. And before he got pardoned by Trump, he had a 14-year jail sentence, and he served served eight of them, which is a pretty long time. His hair still looks great coming out the other end. You know, say what you will about Rod. Yeah, it's white. Otherwise, he has fair hair. His fantastic hair. No, (laughs) the things he has, he's a weird guy. Well, obviously, he's a weird guy. But, like, the things he's good at, he's the best. So, like, he's in the point Oh, 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 one decile or whatever it is of like political talent and instincts and retail politics and political hair and all that stuff. And then in human functioning in every other way, like the bottom decile of all of it. But the things he's good at, he's really, really good at. But we had, uh, there were a few things that I didn't have in my portfolio when I was deputy governor, contracts, procurement, and patronage. And at the time, Rahm Emanuel was a congressman from Chicago. And I guess Rom had asked Rod for two million bucks in state money for an athletic facility in Rom's district, and Rod said, "Yeah, it's kind of pretty normal, basic politics." And the money, I guess, wasn't funded. And Rom calls me one day in a very Rom Emanuel, "Fuck you, this fuck you." Know, he curses five times, hangs up on you, calls back, curses again, hangs up on you. It was almost like watching the show Entourage, which is based on his brother. He said, "You know, Rod promised me this money, and, and I haven't gotten it." I says, "Okay, let, let me check into it. I'll call you back." And I was on the phone with Rod that night. And I said, hey, you know, by the way, Rom called me. He's really upset. Uh, you know, should I just kind of take – because I wasn't in my – wasn't one of the things I dealt with. You want me to take, get it taken care of? He's like, no. What do you mean? He said, Ari. So Ari Emanuel is Rom's brother and the chairman of Endeavor. So he's the biggest person in Hollywood. Promised me a fundraiser. And he's not getting that grant until I get my fundraiser. And I was like, well, you can't really link these two things. One's government. One's politics. Because right, that's illegal. Yes. It's illegal. Right. And so I got off the phone. and and luckily. Made two calls. One was to a lobbyist that was close with both Rod and Rom to say to him, like, look, I'm sure you're going to get asked to put this thing together. Don't do it. And then I called our general counsel, who was the inspector general's appointee in our office, and said, this just happened. He said, okay, I'll take care of it. And he did. And the grant was given and the 
fundraiser never happened, but when Rod was indicted on 24 different counts of corruption, one of them was attempted extortion of Congressman Emanuel, and I found myself twice in Chicago testifying against it. One of the things that Florida went through when we legalized medical marijuana is just an incredible deluge of litigation, right? So I think I, I think I added up at one point over three years, I spent like a hundred hours in deposition of courtroom testimony. Fine. I don't, unless you've gone through it, I don't think people understand how difficult it is to, to spend significant time either testifying in depositions, depositions are especially annoying, but also courtroom stuff, especially if you're being videotaped, you're being watched, the press is there. And so like what I would do is I, I had the most unhealthy habit imaginable. I was basically pounding like four Red Bulls a day because you have to be on, you have to be engaged. Every sentence, every pause you have can have significance, right? And it's, it's exhausting. It's like working every day that you're, you know, you spend in a courtroom, it's like three business days. Totally. And look, you know, these were criminal investigations. And even though I was just a witness, it was still terrifying, right? Right. Because so much of of criminal law and politics is a question of interpretation. Like, how is this particular prosecutor going to subjectively interpret this law. And then when I testified, and I did twice because there was a, a mistrial the first time and hung jury, I went to do it again. You know, the defense comes after you with everything they have. That's their job. They're supposed to do that. So they're trying to beat the shit out of you. And then you leave. And I ended up having an impromptu press conference outside the courthouse because there were, for the first trial, there were like 50 reporters there. I think I was in like, hey, we, they did ransom search. I was in 863 articles the next day, you know, talking about what I was testifying to and the fact that it involved a famous Hollywood person, all of that, of course, just, you know, raised the stakes quite a bit. It was a miserable, miserable experience. I mean, one, one piece of not just advice, but I guess sort of requirement that I give my team all the time, whether it's on the venture capital side or the political consulting side, is we are never, ever going to brush up against the law simply because I've had that experience of even seeing it tangentially and it's terrifying and it's not worth it. And you know, that could mean that we lose a campaign that we hope to win or aren't able to make an investment we can't make. Or, you know, there could be some cost to us in some way. And I understand how in the heat of the moment you get really caught up in stuff, but we are extremely cautious and conservative. I also got lucky that my general counsel is both former federal prosecutor on public corruption and also my sister. And so she does a good job of keeping us out of trouble. And everyone there is afraid of her, including me. So it, it works pretty well. And it's ironic that you that you say that, which is that the kind of Tusk mantra now is you do not get anywhere close to criminal violations or into, or into legal violations, right? But your job now is basically you help startups come right up against what the regulatory restrictions are. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes actually part of that calculus is deciding when to ask for forgiveness and when to ask for, you know, whether when not to dive right in or the yeah. or go by the mantra, it's easier to ask for forgiveness. For, for, for sure. So, I mean, I find that it kind of cuts into one of two areas. Either we're investing in a startup where they're tweaking an existing model. Like Uber is a good example of this. You know, Travis didn't invent the notion of being paying someone to take you from point A to point B. That's been going on for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Um, he just came up with an app that kind of made it more convenient. and the law didn't quite cover what we were doing because we were using new technology that obviously the regulators hadn't hadn't heard of yet. And it was basically a fight with the taxi industry over market share. And they wanted to put us out business mm-hmm. before we ever got going and we were able to resist that and overcome it and, you know, stay in business. So those are questions where, you know, you might get accused of breaking the law, but basically it's more around the law is silent as to this invention because of the people who wrote the laws could invent things, they'd probably be 
entrepreneurs and not regulators. And so it's a question of interpretation and the kinds of things that you have to ask yourself is one, you know, is what I'm doing clearly legal or illegal or in between? The answer is usually in between. If it's clearly illegal, you don't do it. Two, if someone disagrees with that, what kind of problem am I looking at, right? So when it was Uber or Bird and it's like a car or scooters and get impounded, okay, no big deal. But like, you know, in the cryptocurrency world, if you're issuing an initial coin offering that the SEC deems to be in violation, you'd be looking at five to seven years in jail, right? So there are things where you say, okay, the cost here is relatively low, so it's worth pushing this thing forward and trying to get to a resolution. And there are times you just say, hey, I'm not going to do it. I'm an investor in a scooter company called Bird. And if you look at how we kind of rolled Bird out around the country, in markets where electric scooters are either allowed or not explicitly prohibited, we just entered. We didn't ask anyone for permission, pissed off the regulators who felt like we needed their approval first. But we knew that asking for approval just meant that it may or may not happen. And if we came in and people liked the product, they would fight for it, which is exactly what happened. But there were some markets like New York and Chicago where it just clearly was illegal. And we didn't enter until we were able to pass legislation changing the law. So, you know, these things are very, very based on kind of context uh, of not just the startup and the issue, but even the jurisdiction you're in. One of the things I'd like to do is is transition into a piece that you recently wrote for TechCrunch. About COVID nineteen and the and the impact and regulation, and and now we're in this sea change, right? Where what the U.S. startups and what the regulatory entities across the country look like and how they behave has completely changed over the last sixty days. And so, one of the things that you wrote about in in your TechCrunch article, which is called "When Regulation Presents a, a Rare Opportunity," is that the the paradigm for what regulators and what elected officials basically want and what their priorities are have changed because this COVID-19 has drastically affected their bottom line, the amount of money that's actually coming into into the coffers. Can you talk a little bit about what what you think the stimulus and the response has been at the state? Yeah. So, you know, it's really interesting because just about a year ago, you may remember that Amazon wanted to put their second headquarters in New York City and they were rejected. That the kind right. of very publicly. very publicly, very embarrassing. Now, Amazon committed massive political malpractice and how badly they did their job. But even putting that aside, people like AOC, and it was in the district right next to hers, were able to take a very, very progressive bend towards it and stop it from happening. And so it was seen as a victory, right? Can you imagine now where we're looking at 900,000 lost jobs in New York City? If someone would offer us that, you know, we would. We Do you would, think voters remember that? Do you think well, that, that that play is going to have an impact on some of the progressives that tried to take it down? Probably not, because here's the problem voters who, if your average person is a voter, they may remember it. But in a typical primary, so like if you take the city council seat in Long Island City, Queens, which was the neighborhood where the jobs would have been. Turnout in that primary was 12,000 voters. So in a city of 8.6 million people. So those 12,000 voters, as Councilman Bramer knew, are as left-wing and progressive as anti-Amazon as you can be. State Senate primary, it was like 21,000 voters. So the politicians in those districts read the constituents exactly right, but they weren't worried about what the district as a whole thought. They were worried about what that handful of people who actually bother to vote in their primaries think. And I believe that's how every legislator in every body in America, every city, state, county, Congress, all vote, which is if turnout is typically somewhere between 10 and 20%, they know who that 10 to 20% is. They make sure they do nothing to piss off that 10 to 20%. 
They make sure that any entity that has the power to move votes or money in their low turnout primary does isn't angry at them. And that's how they stay in office. They protect their political self-interest. So the politicians in New York who are anti-Amazon were just doing it to protect their own political self-interest. And I think they read the electorate of those who actually vote properly. But either way, you know, we now have the situation where jobs that we would be desperate to have today we rejected just a year ago. And I think the balance of power between kind of pro- anti-tech progressives and kind of pro-tech business people has shifted quite a bit. So if you think about the presidential campaign, Elizabeth Warren made issues like antitrust and privacy against Amazon and Facebook and Google and Apple, a really big part of her campaign, and got a lot of traction for it. And I would argue those are luxury issues, right? In the sense that I don't even necessarily mm-hmm. disagree with her on them, but when people, when times are really good, people worry about things like internet privacy or monopolistic power and things like that. And then when times are bad, they worry about paying the rent. They worry about putting food on the table. They worry about not getting mugged. Their perspective changes completely. And so I think a lot of the momentum that the far left had politically has evaporated simply because those types of concerns are not top of mind anymore. So if you think about it, the day the Sanders candidacy really ended, what's the day that the country started taking COVID seriously? He, he might have waited a few weeks to actually drop out officially but as soon as, you know, right around Super Tuesday, people are like, holy shit, this thing seems real. That was right when they're like, well, this guy can't be our president. This is a joke, right? You know, if, if we want to make a statement about socialism or, you know, Medicare for all, whatever it is, and Sanders is fine, we don't want him running things. He can't run anything. And so I think the left is much less powerful than they were. I think regulators who were worried about what type of permit you need for a scooter or whatever else are now more focused on. A, these crippling budget deficits, B, much bigger problems people are facing. So I think they're less likely to really go after tech in the way they have been in the last couple of years. And governments are starved for revenue. In in New York City, we're looking at a $10 plus billion budget deficit. In New York State, we're looking at a $16 billion budget deficit. So if you are a startup or a business that has tax revenue to offer, so for example, I'm an investor, as you mentioned, in FanDuel. I believe that daily fantasy fantasy sports and sports betting will become legalized in every state in the country simply because it can generate a meaningful amount of revenue and the political choice between raising taxes, cutting spending, or doing sports betting, all of a sudden sports betting becomes the least bad choice and therefore what people make. So I think that if you're a business and you have revenue to offer or jobs you can create, I think you have a lot more leverage than you did even a few months ago. I think that you should feel much more comfortable begging for forgiveness and asking for permission. Now, again, don't be stupid. If the thing you're begging for forgiveness for is criminal, don't do it. But if it's a question of whether or not you have the right license or permit, yeah, I think I think you have the ability to be a little more bold right now and interpret it a little differently. And I think generally speaking, the, the agenda is going to shift to much more pocketbook issues and much more bread and butter issues. And as a result, a lot of the legislation that would limit drones or AI or facial recognition software or blockchain or whatever it is, are not moving, you know, really in any state legislature, let alone places like Florida or Texas, but even not really in New York or California. So so I think the playing field has shifted significantly. I think that is obviously very good for tech. At the same time, whether or not tech as a whole, my portfolio companies realize this because we tell them this and then we act that way on their behalf, whether the industry as a whole is able to recognize the shift and act on it accordingly, we'll see. But it's not that we're going to be in the situation for you know at least two years. Chairman Powell from the Fed said that the earliest he thought we were coming out, from what I read, was end of 2021, and I'm sure he was being optimistic. So 
I think the balance of power has probably shifted for a while. And what facets of tech are you particularly interested in? Yeah, well, the most obvious is telemedicine, right? So we had luckily made a bunch of telemedicine investments out of our fund before COVID hit. In fact, so many that we were worried we were making too many. And then this thing happened like, oh, I guess it's okay. And so there's been more movement on telemedicine regulation probably in the last two months than there had been the previous five years combined, both, both federally and in states, because now people really get the value proposition for it and they don't want there to be hindrances to it. So that's the most obvious one, but there's some others too. So for example, direct to consumer. So we are investors in a company called Sunday Lawn, which is an organic fertilizer company out of Boulder, Colorado. And we invested because we love the CEO. And we felt like even that niche market, the lawn business is so big that even the niche market is a really big business. But now people can't go to Lowe's or Home Depot in a lot of places. So Sunday Lawn sets a new sales record every single day because you can have it shipped to your house. And so direct to consumer is doing really well. I think there are new types of technology that would have faced really significant regulatory hurdles that can now be done a lot faster. So for example, delivery drones, you know, it's sort of a cool idea and they had a few practice runs here or there. But now if you want to be able to get your paper towels from Amazon and not have to worry about, you know, whether or not the person who handed them to you has COVID, you know, the drone doesn't have COVID. And so it, a lot of technology, autonomous cars, same thing. So I think there are technologies that will speed up as a result of it, uh, digital currencies, whether it's crypto or just digital payment stuff like like Venmo or whatever it is, I think are all going to be high priorities now. Anything that reinforces distancing, safety, limits physical contact, I think all has sort of tremendous potential. And and so that's where we've been, been putting some of our dollars lately. If changing regulation becomes easier or more straightforward or the regulators care a little bit less, does that diminish your value proposition or have you seen an uptick in the amount of business that you've, you've been doing for companies? It's, it's a good question. It's probably good for my venture capital fund and bad for my consulting firm. Um, it's good for the fund because my job there is you know with our investment team to figure out what are companies we really like, deploy capital into them, and then shepherd them through the regulatory process. And the easier it is for them, the better it is for us. It just means the product is more likely to move quickly and reach consumers. On the consulting side, obviously, and every lobbyist or public affairs person listening to this podcast well knows, other people's problems are your opportunities. And so if there are fewer regulatory hurdles, that could pose a problem. Or just look, the economy, you know, we have fewer clients than we did a couple of months ago because there were people in industries that that industry barely exists anymore. And so I haven't found COVID to be good for business on the consulting side, but from a deal flow standpoint on the fund, it's been great. What businesses do you think are dead? They say like movie theaters. Like I'm not sure people feel comfortable going back to movie theaters. And and we've already seen, you know, Hollywood companies looking to do more and more directed consumer skipping that yeah. step. So like yeah. what, what concerns you as you look at yeah. the landscape right now? So there are things that I think are potentially, like you said, movie theaters that are potentially dead. And then there are things that are damaged for a long time and whether they can come back from it is unclear. So obviously the entire tra travel and tourism industry is in significant trouble. Airlines are in desperate trouble, hotels, Airbnb, all of that. Do I think that people will resume traveling eventually? Yeah. It, it, there's, you know, people have been traveling since the beginning of time. People like to travel. So I don't think it'll go away entirely. But it's it's really hurt. Things like movie theaters, like you said, where there's no real imperative to be there, and you can watch the same movie now for twenty bucks at home. Probably save some money by by having buying one ticket 
effectively instead of multiple, that's going to really be a change in consumer behavior. As someone who lives in, in New York City, what I worry about is, is even broader, which is do offices feel the need to come back at all? So you're an investment bank, you're a hedge fund, you're a private equity fund, and that's kind of the backbone of New York City's economy. And turns out Zoom's okay. You know, you've been working remotely and people are all over the place and it's a lot cheaper and the technology seems to work pretty well. And that's with everyone doing it on the flies before you even put real resources into figuring out the, the way to optimize it. Do they come back? So for New York, where we see ourselves as the global headquarters for fashion and marketing and advertising and media and finance and so many sectors, the city has suffered problems before. But every other time it suffered problems, even if it went through a few years of, of high crime and lowering tax base and everything else, you still have these inherent core global industries that you could rely on to help mm -hmm. pull you out. If they physically don't come back to New York, then I'm not really sure how the city necessarily comes back from this, especially if we work officially goes under. We work as a New York company. They have, they're actually the biggest landlord technically in New York mm -hmm. right now. It seems hard to believe that anyone's going to want to pack themselves into a shared office space right now. And, you know, once that happens, it seems like the New York commercial real estate market could really bottom out. And it may be a long time before the Big Apple is what it used to be. And especially, you know, right now we have a, a mayor who I assume his reputation where you are is about as bad as it is here. It's just Bill de Blasio is considered one of the most inept, incompetent, lazy public officials in the country. And he has done a terrible job trying to guide the city through. So is that an opportunity then for you there, which is you take these old guard industries or even you mentioned Airbnb, these industries that are, are here but are taking a substantial wound for from COVID-19. I mean, it seems like there's an opportunity there for people who are savvy with navigating political and regulatory environments to, to basically help those companies pivot or tweak their business model in order to either take advantage or at least survive what's going on right now. Yeah, for, for sure. Ultimately, all this uncertainty means that there's opportunities for some industries. There are fears for others, and they may want to invest political resources to try to protect what they have. So, you know, long term, Whenever things really shake up, if you're good at politics and you're agile and you can understand things and act on them pretty quickly, it's to your advantage. It's also why our, our fund is doing particularly well right now, I think. But people still have to have confidence that it's worth spending money at all and companies have to have enough revenue to be able to pay you. And so the reopening is really critical. And my hope is that the hit that at least you know we're seeing and I think other people in my industry are seeing is really because businesses actually had to shut down completely and had no revenue. And then once now they start coming back, they're either going to want to pursue opportunities or protect themselves in some way, and, and that'll keep business going. One of the interesting innovative solutions that you've proposed is mobile voting. And I want to talk about mm -hmm. that a little bit because I know it's a passion of yeah. yours. And it's yeah. speaking of entrenched interests, I, I don't know if there is a yeah, more yeah, yeah. entrenched than basically the political machine. Real quick, though, before we transition into that, one of the things yeah. that I did for show prep, just, just in kind of learning more about some of your positions on things, is I listened to your pod, right? And I went back to, because my, one of my core business issues that I deal with every day is cannabis. So I looked for some of your pods that were relevant cannabis. So I go back to 2017. And your 2017 pod is called The Future of Cannabis. And about seven minutes into the pod, there's an ad that comes on. 
and it's it's for a company called Pinder, which is basically Tinder for pets. <laughs> and about yep. 20 minutes later, there's another ad for whyismypoopgreen.com. And it, it, so Pinder wasn't immediately apparent to me. But, and I actually, after I was done listening, <laughs> I went and Googled those two companies. I saw, what was, was it, was it basically like, we want to get, we want to get ads. And so we're going to have these. No, it, it wasn't, it wasn't even that clever. It was, I was just fucking around. <laughs> I, I had this stretch and I kind of wish I was still doing it. I, I got to get back into the habit of it where, uh, look, we don't have advertisers because one, I have, look, I'm lucky. I don't, I don't need the revenue from advertising right. podcasts. I don't want to deal with any restrictions or obligations or anything around that. And two, you know, we're not, the, we're not the Bill Simmons podcast, right? Mm-hmm. We're a politics cast about politics and technology, but it's my podcast, right? I can literally do whatever I want. And so I would make up like absurd sounding startups that like seem crazy, but maybe there's like just some hint of reality to it. You mentioned Pinder, there's also a phaser, your phone that was also a taser. <laughs> and, you know, like people could almost just believe that maybe some company in the Valley was trying to do it. And then I would write copies for the ad, but in the most, I try to give the, give the ad in the most straight face voice possible. And they sounded like, so Pinder, it sounded like such a, and I feel like an idiot for admitting this, it sounded like such a real company with such an implausible idea that I actually Googled it. And what was crazy is that I, I, I don't know if it's Dutch or whatever, but there's, there's like a company that kind of does what you were proposing, which is like a digital matchmaking service. Getting back on track, I wanted to close out by talking a little bit about mobile voting, which is sure. something that you've had a passion for. So can you talk a little bit about what, what you've done and why you're so passionate about mobile voting? Yeah, sure. I think, I think everything I'm going to say probably makes a lot of sense to people who listen to this podcast because you live it. And look, the thing that I learned in government politics more than anything else is that every policy output is the result of a political input. And because turnout in most elections, especially in primaries, is so low, it's about 10 to 20 percent. And because gerrymandering, you know, 90 plus percent of elections are really determined in the primary, if you were an elected official in either party, and I'm, I'm an independent at this point, I, I think both parties are wildly corrupt. But if you are an elected official, and you are typically a highly insecure, sometimes self-loathing individual who can't live without the validation of holding office, you are never, ever going to do anything to risk your ability to stay in office. The validation and affirmation for them is like oxygen and water for, for everyone else. And so I think one of the reasons, where our, the reasons why in places where our politics goes wrong is we expect politicians to do things that are against their political interest. Um, that's never going to happen. Uh, that human nature, I'm guessing, was true in the Greek Senate and the Roman Senate and any other legislative body or democracy in history. And rather than getting them to try to do something irrational, we need to change the inputs, right? So when we talked earlier about Amazon or New York City, for the very, very tiny group of people who voted in that state Senate primary or that city council primary in Long Island City, Queens, they were so virulently anti-Amazon and anti-business that for those legislators, opposing Amazon actually made political sense. But as we know from lots of data, the city as a whole was very much in favor of, of Amazon and they wanted the jobs. And if turnout, instead of being you know 10% in that city council primary or 50%, then all of the political incentives would have changed. And that same elected official would have voted for it immediately and supported it because he would have lost his job without it. So the good news about politicians is I think they're generally 
highly adaptive, flexible people who will say or do whatever they need to do to stay in office. And if you believe that, then you just have to change their incentives for what they do. And when I was running all those campaigns to legalize Uber, the way that we did it was we were able to mobilize our customers directly from the app. And over a period of years, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people emailed, tweeted, texted, in some way used technology to tell their elected officials that they wanted to be able to use ride sharing and use Uber. And we won in every single market in the United States as a result. And I remember when we were doing that thinking, wow, if people could vote this way, it'd be amazing. And then as both the cloud and blockchain technology both developed, all of a sudden it became feasible for people to vote that way. And so out of my foundation, we have been running a mobile voting initiative where we're trying to bring mobile voting to the United States. It started in March 2018 in a West Virginia primary where deployed military from two counties in West Virginia were able to vote on their phones and expanded that to over the last two years elections in Colorado, Utah, Washington, Oregon, New Jersey, and Delaware, and have now done about a dozen in total. And they have all been independently audited by the National Cybersecurity Center and all come back clean and turn on an average more than doubles each election. And so it's working. So far, it's been used for very small groups of people like deployed military or people with disabilities, because you know, if you are blind or deaf, the smartphone has really likely transform your life. And so advocates want access to be able to use that. And my hope is that we can kind of keep proving it in different jurisdictions around the U.S., county elections, municipal elections, state elections, federal elections, offer to different demographics and constituencies and keep building enough faith and support in it and see the technology keep improving and get to a place where, you know, maybe by 2028, this is how we all vote. To borrow a line from Always Sunny, who is this versus? Who, what is the constituency that want, that will fight you on this, that, or the entrenched interest that does not want this to happen? A few, a few. So the initial are, there are people who are advocates for paper ballot only and believe that any other type of voting is unsafe. And so they're fighting us. Um, however, uh, in your home state of Florida, as you may recall, uh, paper ballot didn't work so well in the year 2000, and that ultimately got us the Iraq War. So I'm not sure, you know, look, <laughs> mobile voting may have its flaws, but it's never killed a million people by paper ballot. Oh ballots. my gosh! So, so is that on your fly? Is that on your your ad flyers that we don't want another be, Iraq War? Yeah, right. <laughs> we never killed a million. At least we never killed a million people. So that's one group. There are computer scientists who don't really do anything about politics. They just look at it and say, oh, we think it could be hacked this way or tampered with that way. And by the way, they may be right, but they're looking at it in a vacuum saying, unless mobile voting is absolutely perfect, we shouldn't do it, when every other form of voting, paper, mail, voting machines, you know, all have vulnerabilities, and mobile voting shouldn't be any less secure than them, but it shouldn't be held to a much higher standard either. So you get some opposition there. But then ultimately, it's going to come from all the people who currently benefit from the current system. So if you are the NRA or the NEA, right, anyone really on the left or the right, where because of low turnout primaries, you can disproportionately move money and votes in that primary and therefore dictate what a legislator does or a mayor or senator or governor or whoever, then you're not, this would mean you would lose your power, right? And you're not going to want to see that happen. So labor unions will oppose this. Business groups will oppose this. People on the far left will oppose this. People on the far right will oppose this. And a lot of politicians who are comfortable with the current system and the status quo will oppose it simply because they don't want to take the risk of a new system. So if you take, you know, guy we talked about before, Chuck Schumer, 
Chuck is then around 70 years old, had an incredibly successful career. He knows how to succeed in this system. He is terrified of AOC primarying him in two years. He doesn't want mobile voting because it's a devil he doesn't know. And so you're going to get a lot of opposition from kind of entrenched political interests, whether it's elected officials who are older or from, you know, industries that don't want to lose power. But the nice thing is you can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? You know, once we brought Uber into a market and people started using it, there was no going back. And I think the same thing is true here. Once you vote on your phone, it is such a better way to do it, especially now people are worried about, you know, pandemics, that I think that they're not going to be willing to go back to the old way. And if we can kind of light that spark, I think we can ultimately make this happen. Now, out of all those arguments that you listed, what do you think the most salient argument against mobile voting would be? And and how are you, how do you counteract that? Security, I've done some polling on this because I was, I had the same question you just did. Look, while interest groups and elected officials may oppose it no matter what, because it's not in their personal interest, voters all sort of think, hey, if I could vote on my phone, that's great. And by the way, you know, some studies show as many as 95% of American adults have a smartphone at this point. So it's basically a utility. But they want it to be safe, right? And they know about Russia and Facebook in 2016. And so, you know, to, they want to feel that the way that they're voting is, is appropriate and legal and safe. So we've got to show them that. And I think there's a few different ways to do that. One is we just have to keep proving it over and over again, right? So, you know, there are at least some people who were opposed to us when we did the first or second project. I think now are a little less vocal by the 12th simply because we keep proving it over and over again. And we do it 30, 40, 50 times that, you know, some of them will at least realize, hey, this thing might be okay after all. And I think that we need to be really rigorous. So, for example, a company called Votes did the first nine or 10 mobile voting elections, but we had some concerns about some of the protocols. I hired a firm called Trail a Bit to do a really deep penetration test of votes. They found some issues, nothing that had affected the actual elections, but still coding issues they were concerned about. And we have told election officials that until votes fix disease, we can't continue to work with them. So I need to keep proving to people that I care about security and I take it as seriously as they do and keep pushing the companies in the space to get better and better and to work with other tech companies to take on issues like voting so that people eventually say, I want to be able to vote but I'm not on a random Tuesday going to miss work or taking my kid to school or whatever it is to do it. So you got to make it more convenient and you got to make it safe. And the hope is that we can do that. Well, you have been more than generous with your time. Very much appreciate you taking an hour out of your very busy schedule in order no to talk to us. To close out, Tony and I usually do a, a closing segment at, for every pod where we do our shout out of the week. It can be sure. – any individual, entity, company, any, anything that, that's kind of catching your uh, this top of mind for you right now? Do you have a, do you have a shout out? Is, is, is it a business-related thing or is it like – It can uh, be anything. For, it, I mean, because look, in the middle of a pandemic, it feels silly to give a shout out to a scooter company or an insurance tech company or, a, you know, something like that. So <laughs> given that I live in New York City, you know, the shout out would be to – all the doctors and nurses in our hospitals who are treating people with COVID, all the doctors and nurses from around the country who have come to our city to volunteer and help out. It's made a huge difference. All the first responders, look, all the people delivering food and just making it possible for people to be able to get the basic stuff they need, all of that has sort of kept our city at least somewhat functioning in the midst of, you know, one of the worst crises, if not the worst crisis it's ever faced. 
And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And my hope is that we're getting closer and closer to a vaccine. And there's a lot about New York City to be concerned about, both politically and economically. It's still, I'd like to get back to as close as to what we used to have. And I'd like to get my old life back. And so I'm grateful for everyone trying to do it. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank, hey, thank you. Thanks for having me, man. This was really fun. Cool. Okay. Thank you so much. That was good. All right. Take care, man. Take care. Take care. Bye. All right. That does it for this week. Thanks again to Bradley for joining us on Regulated. I really enjoyed that interview. And it's crazy because as much as we covered and, you know, we went for an hour, we really just scratched the surface of his experience and the stuff he's doing now. But overall, really pleased with how that turned out. Be sure to follow Bradley on Twitter at Bradley Tusk or at Tusk Ventures. And you can find Bradley's podcast firewall on all major streaming services. And this week, he's actually got a really great interview with the head of government affairs for Pfizer on their efforts to produce a COVID vaccine. I came out of that pod feeling pretty optimistic about the future. And you may also, if you enjoy this podcast, enjoy his November episode on psychedelics going mainstream. And of course, check out his book. I read his book in a day on my Kindle. And If you're interested in regulatory law or futurism or the political game, it's just reading that book and and kind of how Bradley breaks things down strategically and pursues these inventive, innovative, creative ways to, you know, with Airbnb taking on the hotel industry, with Uber taking on taxis and dislodge these entrenched political interests. It's, It's very exciting really, really enjoyable read. Just unsolicited, 100% endorsement for the book, The Fixer, My Adventure is Saving Startups from Death by Politics. Finally, don't forget to check out Regulated on Twitter and Instagram. We have the Regulated handle on both accounts. And stay tuned over the next couple weeks for the launch of our website. We've put a lot of work into that, and I'm really happy with the way that thing is looking right now. So as we sign off, stay safe, stay healthy, and ladies and gentlemen, Stay compliant.